When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Palmerbet on the edge of the box. Oh, it's a straight-up screamer! Download our app today and enjoy straight-up screamers this FIFA World Cup with great odds, great promos and same-game multi at Palmerbet. Gamble responsibly. For gambler's help, call 1-800-858-858. Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello everybody and welcome to the show. As always, we're here for our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Today, This Is Your Sporting Life becomes This Is Your Journey as we seek to bring you the inspirational and amazing tales in and behind the world of sport. To mark the occasion, we are joined by an Aussie trailblazer. Jockey Claire Lindop was the first woman to win the Victoria Derby and the first Australian woman to ride in the Melbourne Cup. And with 1,432 wins, including four at Group 1, level five jockeys premierships Claire left an indelible mark on Australian racing and a lasting legacy for other generations to follow Claire welcome thanks so much for joining us Oh, thank you, Sam. What a wonderful welcome. I think I need to record that myself and play that when I'm feeling a bit down. <laughs> to be honest, I could have gone on and on there. You you have heard the word first a lot in your life, not just past the post. You heard it a lot there. But because of your gender, obviously, you just kept knocking the doors down. Is it something that, Claire, resonated with you during your career or has it become more real in recent times after retirement? I think in the fullness of time, it's probably now it means more and it's probably more special now. Um, now I have finished my racing career and looking back, and I think, you know, I have heard that advice. You can only sort of, things only make sense, we connect the dots um, backwards, and you obviously can't, you know, predict the future. Mm. But sometimes um, when you're actually in the moment, um, and it's something I, it was a bit of a double-edged sword for me being um, a female jockey uh, in a sport which... Um, Gender equality, I think, has been since 1979, but it was very tough in the 80s for the girls who were really up against it. I started in the 90s when there was a lot of successful females, and I felt like, in some ways, I felt like me getting accolades was a bit unfair because there were so many women before me who had done done it tougher, I felt. And I had really good opportunities. I had a lot of support from a lot of good trainers. Um, I really felt um, accepted by my colleagues. Uh, when you're riding as a jockey out there in the field, everyone's, um, I guess, sort of tested perhaps on their first start, um, you know, to sort of prove your mettle, so to speak. And I think it's even young, it's hard, same, same for young guys as for a young girl to start and get opportunities. So I kind of really felt that I never had, um, people said to me, oh, it's like being a girl in a man's world. Mm. I was found it a really frustrating question because I couldn't really answer it. I mean, I only knew my story and like what I felt like. And, you know, I had lots of opportunities. In some ways, being a girl gave me more media attention. Um, you know, the fact that I ran 18th in the Melbourne Cup in 2003 changed my life, whereas, you know, a young guy running, running the Melbourne Cup may not have had the same effect on him. Mm. Um, so in some ways, it, did, it was good, but it also did detract from, I guess, me just trying to do my job. 
I used to drive me nuts. Actually, to be honest, I used to be like, oh, you know, come and do a, do a photo, do this, blah, blah, blah. And I used to be like, I'm just trying to concentrate on doing my horse's form and doing the best job for the people who are employing me, the owners of the horse. Um, so I did find it a little bit detracting sometimes as well. So that's what I'm saying about the double-edged sword. Yeah, no, 100%. It works both ways, uh, of course. But your legacy is undeniable. You rewrote the record books. And, and I guess now it's a big part of your life, isn't it? Well, we'll get to what you're doing um, from a council perspective at the moment. But you're now at Racing SA. A lot of impressionable minds there. A lot of kids that you're speaking to as well. So you get to pass on some of that wisdom. Yeah, I just started with Racing SA this year um, as Industry Development and Training Officer, which encompasses a whole range of different things, and I guess it's a new role, so I was kind of finding my feet. And um, The main thing, obviously, is to create pathways into racing, because sometimes if you're not involved in racing or you know, not from a horse family, racing seems so... Um, basically demystifying the industry and, and making it accessible to people and um, going to schools, um, getting our subjects, which is like a certificate three stable hand, like an entry level into the vet curriculum, which uh, it is a flexible industry pathway for, for kids to help with their um, year 11 and 12 and get, give them points towards their uh, finishing their school. So I think that's a fantastic thing because I left school at 15 and I think it, you do miss out on that bit when you don't finish high school. So to have people that might want to do a trade uh, and have asked the racing certificate as part of the trade culture and sort of growing that sustainable workforce is something really important. I mean, we, we hear now from a lot of trainers that they lack staff, um, they lack track work riders. So how do we actually start um, creating our own workforce and work base and you know, the old horsemanship skills that I learned, um, I'm, I'm just loving being able to sort of pass that on. Uh, and, you know, the reason why I got into it because the love of horses and the passion of horses that I have. And so sharing that with another generation um, is really kind of fun, actually. I do enjoy that. Yeah, yeah. And when you look back on your journey, Claire, which we'll do our best to detail in the, in the small amount of time we have, what are the traits that you think served you well and that you seek to share with others in your life now? I mean, resilience, courage, ambition, all of the above and many more, I'd imagine. Yeah, the best part about racing is that it's a it's an individual sport. So you're you're taking on your own merits, and you can be as good as you can be as a jockey, uh, even as a trainer. Um, but when I say it's an individual sport, it's also a team sport, and the fact that you can enlist so many people to help and support you, and it's up to you to find a mentor. Um, you know, I've had many, uh, even a personal trainer at my jockey manager. Uh, also health people to help me um, to get keep the best I can be. And you could really take in your own merits because it's the only sport when women, women compete equally, even trainers, et cetera, are competing against each other. Uh, and it's really – and we talk about racing being a great level of what does it actually mean? It does mean that if someone works hard, you can achieve anything. And that's the beauty, I guess, and the mystique behind Australian racing uh, and the Melbourne Cup being a handicap as our best race, which I think is still um, – People sort of from overseas don't understand the way that we have Australian racing is so accessible to everyone. Mm. And that's kind of the beauty of, of Australian racing. You can, anyone can get a horse, get in a syndicate and get involved. Um, and as a trainer or a jockey or a participant in racing, uh, you can make it your own. And, and I guess it comes down to the hard work. And um, so I guess I still love being taken on your own merits, I think is the most important thing. So back to your, your question about what do you actually need to be your best in racing, it, it really comes down to um, having a look at your own, what your strengths and weaknesses are and working on both of them and trying to find your niche and your level and what you could offer to racing that someone else doesn't. There are a couple of words that get a mention a few times on your website, Claire, clearlindop.com.au, <laughs> and they are no excuses. A bit of a theme, if you like. Where, where does that come from? 
I think, um, so when I did start in 1995, um, you know, I was 40-odd, 48 kilos, um, quite small, quite little, uh, competing against, you know, wizened guys like, um, you know, had been riding for years and years and years, Mm. uh, you know, Neville Wilson, uh, that sort of era uh, that I was riding against. And so how did I compete against jockeys like that? And, you know, it was very easy to sit back and go, well, I'm not as strong as them. You know, the excuse of of running second is, oh, you know, I'm a girl. I'm doing okay for a girl. And, you know, sometimes people said to me, said, oh, you know, you're not bad for a girl. And, you know, and that wasn't, they didn't actually mean that as an insult. They actually were trying to encourage me. <laughs> so <laughs> so I kind of thought like, well, I could take that as, um, you know, I'm never going to be good enough uh, and just accept that. Or I could go, okay, well, I disagree that, like, don't let someone tell you your story. Um and the other thing that I did notice too, and this is not necessarily poking, pointing fingers at any other female riders, but there was an attitude of that they weren't successful because they were female. Um, they didn't get opportunities because they were female. Mm. And I also disagree with that. I thought, well, actually, you're probably just not good enough. So, so you know, I had to sort of like that. No excuses came like, don't just let – and it's a very easy, I think, and sometimes can be a lazy option to think, well, I'm never going to achieve something because I'm a girl. I'm never going to achieve X because I'm not, not from the right side of the track. I didn't go to the right school. I don't know the right people. I haven't got the right connections. It's super easy to just fall back and, and you know, cross your arms and go, well, you know, I'm not lucky. I don't have the opportunity that, you know – so-and-so does and so then you can sort of become your own little story and you just sort of stay in your own little comfort zone rather than stretching yourself and, and reaching, mm. you know, trying to trying to extend yourself. And so I really thought, well, you know, if I need to be as strong as the guys I'm riding against and they've got years of riding experience on me and fitness, then I need to do something about it. So I listed a personal trainer, um, you know, I got as strong as I could be. And this has been a theme throughout my years and I didn't learn that straight away as an apprentice jockey either, by the way. It took some, took some time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, yeah, so, you know, my early 20s, I think I broke my collarbone when I was 24 and I was sort of struggling to get back in fitness and I found a good personal trainer and um, really enjoyed working with him. And he's sort of really taught me a lot about being physically fit uh, and how to be pound for pound as strong as the guys I was riding against. So that sort of did actually increase my riding. And uh, when I finished my apprenticeship, and I'm jumping around here, um, Mm. in South Australia, I had probably a very lean season. I only rode one city winner. And it was sort of the time where I was thinking, well, am I actually going to make a living out of being a professional jockey or not? Like I think at the time, female jockeys were great apprentices and could always um, make the mark as apprentices. But taking that step to be a senior was always tough. So I was looking around going, well, I'm actually not sure I'm going to make a living out of being a jockey. So what am I going to do instead? Um, And I actually went to a a business course at TAFE uh, and started actually thinking about being treating my profession as a as a professional jockey and, and how I could up the ante and what I could do to make myself uh, successful. And it really came back down to starting to work for racehorse trainers and this is probably when Leon McDonald and his stable came on t- came into the scene. Working for them every day and making yourself invaluable um, so they couldn't really get rid of you. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Basically it might have been annoying. <laughs> but writing work every day and, and my – as go back to finding a niche and what you were good at. If I rode a horse every day and said to, the, said to Leon, the boss, um, you know, this is the way I suggest we can ride it. I know the horse inside and out. Then he could defend me to the owners and say, I think we should give this girl a go. She's been riding a track work. She knows horse inside out. She's got some good ideas and how we can get the best out of the horse. And that's where my platform came from. And that's how I got the mm. opportunities and got the go. 
No excuses. And racing took you all over the world, all over Australia as well, obviously, from the Premier meetings to the, to the obviously, the far-flung bush tracks as well. We, we mentioned uh, Racing SA. You've obviously settled in Adelaide now, and you're an elected councillor, aren't you? City of Holdfast Bay. Yeah, I um, in 2018, um, when I did decide that I was going to hang up the boots from race riding, uh, I was a little bit sort of obviously looking for the next thing, the next challenge, and, and what am I going to do with myself and my spare time, and um, and also looking what I was actually going to do with myself. Um, and I actually was speaking to the local mayor. I live in Brighton and uh, sort of the Glenelg area, if anyone knows Adelaide, the, the normal stay in Glenelg area. Uh, that council there, City of Holdfast Bay, and... Uh, the mayor who was running for mayor, I was having a conversation with her and um, I think I've probably complained about something. Anyone who knows <laughs> knows me knows I've always been vocal, you know, in the Jockeys Association, et cetera, speaking up for jockeys' rights and welfare issues and things like that. So I think I was complaining about something in my area. Mm-hmm. And she suggested that I, um, you know, put my hand up and stand for the air, local area and become elected member. And so I didn't know much about that sort of thing. But coming from my, my, my grassroots in the country, Warrnambool, um, I lived out in Wangoom, where um, all the local farmers were on the council and if they wanted something done, they did it themselves. And so, uh, you know, mum was part of the CFA, uh, you know, dad went out and fought the fires, like so everyone sort of pitched in. So I guess it sort of um, resonated with me and, and being part of local government has been a great way to meet people, give back to the community, um, advocate for small sporting clubs and volunteer groups, which I didn't really know existed in my area. And it's been very eye-opening and I guess... What I, what I have taken it away is uh, the power of policies. So if you get the top right, um, then that can filter down and change, make changes right down to the bottom. So, for example, as a jockey, you might be complaining about, um, you know, something in ground level, but it's not until it goes to the, to the top boards, you know, the Racing South Australia board or even Racing Australia, that the changes can really happen. So sometimes getting the top right is really important. You're listening to This Is Your Journey, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. From humble beginnings. After this, we go back to the start of Claire Lindop's incredible journey, and it might just have you believing in destiny. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, great to have your company on This Is Your Journey, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're with champion Aussie jockey Claire Lindop. Claire, you mentioned it earlier, and I, I must confess, I had to look up Wongoom on the map. I'm not proud of it, <laughs> but your hometown in country Victoria, just outside Warrnambool. Fond memories of growing up there? Definitely. If you follow the uh, Warrnambool ra- uh, race week, the Warrnambool May Carnival, the Wongoom handicap is on the Wednesday. It's the good sprint race. Um, and I did get to ride and it never won the race, unfortunately. But, yeah, that's a little uh, named after the little town just outside of Warrnambool. Um, it's just dairy farm country. So, uh, yeah, little Wongoom, that's where I'm from. No family background in racing was something that struck me. I, I'm no idea of the stats there, to be honest. But I, I would have thought there would typically be some sort of connection that plants the seed for an, an ambitious wannabe jockey. So... What was it that brought you into racing, Claire? Oh, it might have been the property next door, was it? You're right. Uh, I was 10 years old and uh, you know, I think I had a girlfriend at the time uh, who had ponies as well. And I said to mum and dad, I want to get a pony as well. And we had land. Uh, we weren't farmers. Mum and dad were actually teachers, but we had um, 60 acres and you know, we had some beef cattle and things like that. 
Uh, and he said, "Oh well, look, let's go down for a horse ride at the local pony farm." Thinking that'll, you know, that'll keep her quiet and happy for a little while. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I was very fortunate to live in an area. It was called Saint Mary's Pony Farm, and uh, the guy who ran it, John, Mister John Lee, he would take uh, trail ride treks along the Hopkins River. Uh, and you'd sort of, you know, go for an hour walk on the ponies, and the ponies are pretty quiet and sort of all follow each other in single line, and they would sort of trot in the right air spot. And yeah. you know, if, you, if, if people could ride a bit better, they could go for a bit more of a canter or whatever. Um, so I went down there for one weekend, and, and you know, Mum says that she never saw me again. Really, every weekend I spent at the pony farm, and he, he had um, his grandchildren were my age as well, so I used to you know muck around with them every weekend, and it was a great way to learn because you know he had sort of 30, 40 horses, so I wasn't just riding one pony. Um, I was sort of riding all different horses from you know small Shetlands to to you know had a couple of Clydesdales and different types of horses. So he really did embed in me some um, great horsemanship skills. And so I do look around now and I think, well, how do people actually learn to ride? Um, unless you can really afford it now, pony um, pony riding can be quite expensive. Mm. Going for ride in Adelaide, there's lots of places in the hills that do do horse riding lessons, but it's quite expensive. So it is a bit of an issue in, uh, when I'm working with Racing SA and how we actually do have some horse courses and we're working on getting some retired race horses and, um, uh, you know, doing some some horse handling skills um, for courses for teenagers and, and school leavers. I digress a little bit. Sorry. Yeah, that's how I got into um, to horses to start with. And so then I did have a pony um, and the Warrnambool Pony Club. Um, I, I used to ride from Wangoon, which is 10 k's out of the city, into the pony club <laughs> every month for the rallies and went to gym carners and stuff. And there's actually a great group of us, um, Matthew Williams, um, Simon Wild. Um, there's quite a few, you know, sort of racing people who ended up from that pony club. So um, I went on to being in racing. So I think Warrnambool being a racing town and mm. – I got a job in a racing stable, basically just on weekends, mucking out the boxes because uh, you know I'm going to pay twenty bucks, and I thought that was pretty good because that's paid for my horse's upkeep and bits and pieces. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And then the trainer said, "Would you like to be an apprentice jockey?" And I was a little bit like, "Well, what's that?" Didn't really know much about it, racing, etc. So I did come into it very green, absolutely. And but yeah, well, once I went to races, I loved it. Yeah, you mentioned Johnny Lee, obviously the master horseman there at the, the Pony Club. Do you reckon John knew what he had on his hands when Young Claire showed up for the first time? <laughs> Well, well, I don't know about that. Dad tells a story that, um, that, that when he took me down there, um, he said, oh, you know, she's a bit small. Um, you know, I can come back, which is a bit bigger. And Dad said, oh, well, she's actually 11 years old. And um, he goes, oh, well, maybe she can stay. You know, I look like I was, you know, obviously quite small and light. He said, oh, we'll go for a ride this afternoon and see how she goes. Um, and uh, he said he put me on this pony to learn how to trot and could trot straight away. So I sort of had some natural, um, mm. I guess, balance and you know, had gymnastics background, et cetera. So, um, but I guess, yeah, I, I wasn't really a jockey and I couldn't really ride that well, but I had an affinity with horses straight away. So I think, yeah, Mr. I like to think Mr. Lee saw that in me and uh, worked with that for sure. So, yeah. Very nice. And the decision, obviously, you mentioned the fact that you got the job at, at the trainer's stable. Allensford, I think it was. Um, yep. The decision to leave Warrnambool Secondary College at 15, how did that go down with the folks, Claire? Well, what would that have been? Was that year 10, maybe? Yeah, not even year, year 9. I year finished nine. year 9, that's it. Which is now, as an older person, I look back and think that's just no education whatsoever. So I understand who both my parents, who dad was a lecturer at Deakin University, uh, mum taught you know secretarial studies at TAFE and... They couldn't. They really were a bit shocked that I was leaving school at fifteen, but um, I just I just did a little bit of homework and I said to mum and dad, "Oh, there's Glenormanston School down the road, and um, they do horse college. And if it doesn't work out, they said I can go there. They can uh, you know recognise my prior learning. 
think if I've worked in the racing industry. And so mum goes, oh, well, that's all right. At least there's something to fall back on. Um, but mum and dad were very supportive, thank goodness, and lived at home for the first years of my apprenticeship before I moved away from Warrnambool. I went to Hamilton for a couple of years before I uh, moved on from there. And living at home, you know, as a, as a 16, 17-year-old and, and being apprentice jockey was, was was great. And, I, you know, I look at some other kids who have to had to leave their uh, home and, and live at their bosses' houses. That would have been pretty tough too as a 15, 16-year-old. But, um, yeah, I was lucky to have that family support and mm. been forever grateful for that. Um, mum, you know, at 4 a.m. if it was raining, I'd be knocking at mum's door going, Mum, Mum, can you take me to work? So she'd used to rub my bike to the stable. But, yeah, when it was raining, it's knocking the door and making it up and take me to work. So, yeah. <laughs> so you obviously yeah. started working with local trainer Frank Byrne, his wife Diane. I think you're around 13 years of age. Now, three years later, Claire, you had your first race ride, 1995 Warner. May races and on your 16th birthday you're on board Casper trained by Frank and owned by Diane so no no pressure then how vivid is the how vivid is the memory of that first ride oh it's so vivid yeah I remember I was packing my race bag you know for weeks leading up to it you get all your race gear organized and you get your silks sent to you and your boots and you've never worn any of this before <laughs> And um, it's very slippery. Your silk, your pants now, and your light boots are very slippery when you jump into a saddle on a, on a um, race day. Now they actually can ride. Now they make the apprentices ride in their race silks prior to going to a race day. But back then, you know, I think I had five trials, and they said, "Where you go? Here's your ticket." Um, <laughs> And um, the steward who gave me the um, my ticket to ride and races is only just retired, Mr. Frank Beatty. He was uh, he was from Warrnambool and he was a fantastic steward and he really did help guide me actually early days. Um, but yeah, I remember watching the replay. The whole race was a blur. It was twelve hundred meter race and like the whole race was just over and like a click, like just a blink of an eye. I was like, oh my god, what happened? Kind of thing. I'm watching the replay. And I picked myself out in the field and I was like, who's that sitting up really high and you know basically looked stuck out like a sore thumb? And I was shocked. That was me. That's the first time I'd ever seen myself on, like, riding in a race. I've ever ever seen video footage of it because uh, we didn't have the sort of films and trials and jump out footage that you have now. Uh, and now, you know, you, you know you, you're watching yourself on film straight away. So back then, though, I'm glad that no one else could see it because I don't know if I would have got it much of a go if they watched my first ride. It was terrible. <laughs> I remember looking at it going, right, you know, that's, that won't do. You know, you know, I felt like I felt like I looked like Damien Oliver. I was just terrible. So, <laughs> um, yeah, and Marie Payne was my idol back then. She, she was – she looked in a race – so strong and you couldn't pick her out from the field for being a female rider like she looked she had a flat back she looked really good in the field and so you know I basically thought right I need to start copying Marie and and just basically try to mimic her style and and that kind of thing and and yeah I'd like to think that that gave me a bit of a shock my first ride and thought I've got to do better than that. Well you did you did do better than that November of the same year your first winner opinions differ dunk held. The Jack Barling, who I ended up being my second boss. I transferred my dentures to him the following year from that, I think. Um, he was such a lovely uh, trainer. Um, and one of the saddest things is that he actually passed away from cancer in year 2000, so he never got to see me uh, ride in the Melbourne Cup and that sort of thing. But, yeah, I think he, he really gave me such great start um, in, as, a, as a jockey and he put me on every horse he had um, and really promoted me, which is, did, did wonders for my yeah, confidence. You're with This Is Your Journey, and it's brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You can find them online at tobinbrothers.com.au. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back with Claire Lindop right after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives.
Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey. We're chatting with the first Australian woman to ride the Melbourne Cup, Claire Lindop. So, Claire, 2003, what did it mean to be told, I'm not sure if you can put it into words all these years on, that you had a ride in the race that stops a nation? Oh, wow, yeah. It was a life-changing event for me, absolutely. Um, you know, I mentioned 2003, I'd been working hard. I'd started riding for Leon McDonald. I'd ridden a horse for him called Deben, who won the St. Ledger in, I think, the August carnival, uh, autumn carnival, beg your pardon. Um, and she, so that was a qualifying distance for the Melbourne Cup and obviously entered with the Melbourne Cup and she was a dower stayer, um, but the owners were kind of dreaming, I suppose. Um, but it was one of those years and she just seemed to be getting, every time the, the, um, acceptances came out again for the Melbourne Cup. She seemed to be climbing up the list and about a couple of weeks prior to Melbourne Cup, it appeared she was going to get a run. She was still like, you know, about 30 in order of entry. Um, and so I started asking Leon and all the, um, you know, the staff who was going to ride in the Melbourne Cup. And he just, Leon would just laugh and say, well, put your name into the hat. Um, and I had been working really hard in, in Adelaide and um, you know, I turned up every day, um, you know, bought the foreman a box of beer, um, you know, basically, you know, washed the boss's car. But I just sort of kept my name up there and um, I had been riding winners um, in Adelaide. And when she got a start, um, Leon had said to the owners, well, what about putting Claire, Claire, Claire Lindop on? And they said, yeah, let's give her a chance. She's one on the horse. Um, so it was just one of those absolute just dream come true kind of moments. And to hear that I was selected to ride in the race um, just blew me away. Um, and then, of course, the media got wind because there had been two other female jockeys riding the Melbourne Cup before, but both in the early 80s mm. um, and uh, from New Zealand, um, Linda Ballantyne and Marie Linden. So for me to get a ride in the Melbourne Cup was pretty big deal. So I, even I didn't realise the media attention I would get. And so it was just a whirlwind for the next 48 hours. Um, and to be part of that, I just let myself really, and Leon said the same thing, let's just really enjoy it and let it go. And I think he enjoyed it as well too. So you'd been around for a while at this point, but 18th on the day itself. I mean, how different was it for you? Can you remember? I mean, what are your memories of the build-up, how big it was, the day and the race itself? Probably the most special moment was the jockey introduction because that's something you watch on TV, um, you know, as a kid who loves racing and, you know, before I was even involved in racing, but obviously it's the Melbourne Cup at, you know, school assemblies, et cetera, and do the class sweepstake. Um, and so you'd watch the jockey introduction and, and, and to be in that line and have your name called out and then you walk up on stage and people would give you a big cheer. That was like... Yeah, it was goosebump material. It was like, this is, is this really happening? This is like watching, my, you know, my idols on TV doing this. And it was. I was full of a race with, you know, Frankie Dottori was there. Um, I was next to the gates with Shane Dye, you know, Damien Oliver, all of the jockeys that I'd been watching for years and admiring. I was just in another race with them. Um, and it was interesting. I felt like um, the actual race itself um, – once I was on the horse in the mounting yard and heading out to the gates and, um, you know, basically I thought, right, you know, this is it. You want to really concentrate. You don't look like you don't belong. Like really got to ride the horse well. And Devon did have some sort of chance and she jumped from really inside gate, put herself into the race really well. Uh, and it's all a matter of like the first down, – coming down the straight in the Melbourne Cup, the, the crowd is so loud and the horses get really fired up by that too. Um, and so, you know, and the horses are coming across in the wide gates trying to jostle and get their position. I had drawn well and you didn't want to kick up without getting too horse over racing because you don't get want to get chopped out. And so I was kind of trying to find that middle middle rein. And so I ended up settling about midfield or a bit worse than midfield. And I was really happy with where she was. And after you leave the straight the first time, it's like there's a bit of a lull. Everyone takes like a bit of a collective sigh and... That's when you talk about getting your horse into the rhythm and you can kind of relax. Um, and that's when sort of you basically just suck it up in whatever position you're in. You just have to sit there and wait and be patient until the, until the moves start coming. The moves sort of start coming from the 1,200 metres 
and uh, and myself, I was starting to improve a little bit. And horses were tiring in front of me. I was starting to sort of make ground in the Melbourne Cup, making ground. Uh, and coming around the home turn, I thought, you know, I, we had a top 10 plan as a finish because it's still good money all the way down to 10th in the Melbourne Cup. Uh, and she was going quite well, Devon, at the top of the straight. I thought, we're going to run, run into this okay. Um, and then I hear the shout from behind me and um, – um, Maccabi Diva flashed past me, absolutely motored past me, and that was the first year that she won. So, but we boxed on and battled away, um, and yeah. So to be part of that race just changed my life. I mean, that night I was on the Royal HG show. Um, <laughs> the next day I rode a you know a double at Murray Bridge, and then that year I just didn't stop riding winners. Just it was like people thought, well, if Leon can put on the Melbourne Cup, she must be able to ride. And you know I rode 111 winners that season, which yeah. is pretty unheard of and only just got beaten what, last year or the year before by Jamie Carr so you know and Linda Meach as well but yeah it's pretty amazing. It was 111 it was a magical period for you 2003 2004 and you'd be back at the cup of course Bar Cummings in 08 which was a big year viewed won the cup that year so you were part of the team and then 2007 you're right in the mix with Dolphin Joe you finished fifth. Yeah. Every time I've ridden in the Melbourne Cup, it was a different experience. Um, and Dolphin Joe was one that we actually really – I thought he was a real chance, mm. real life chance in the race. Um, and he ran really well, ran accordingly, so that was excellent. And like I said, to ride for the master, Bart Cummings. Um, I had ridden here and there for Bart um, during the spring carnivals, and we had a really good um, relationship. And actually, there's one horse um, I just got beat on the Geelong Cup, um, Dame, Dame Bar, I think it was called, or something yeah. like that. And uh, Danny Nicklick won the race. Just He followed me throughout the race and just got up and beat me on the line. Um, and I reckon if that horse had won the Geelong Cup, me and Reg Fleming say this every time, if that horse had won the Geelong Cup and got into the Melbourne Cup, it would have been a real life chance. So it's just funny how the one race that you know that gets away is one that sort of bugs you the yeah. whole time Yeah, Slot. when you retire. But, yeah, it was, Bart was amazing. To be part of his team on the day was, was very special. Sliding doors, isn't it? Speaking of sliding yeah. doors then, Claire, let's talk Rebel Raider. 2008 Victoria Derby, Flemington again for Leon. McDonald, gee, you formed such a great partnership. A hundred to one chance. Can you take us there? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So his start before was at the Geelong Derby trial and he ran a nice third, um, but he was still a colt. Um, as you know, he's obviously gone on a bit of stallion, but um, he, I said to Leon, he's not concentrating. I said, is it stupid to put blinkers on him going at stepping up a distance because you know, it's not always done? And he says, no, well, we may as well try it, you know, um, may as well do it. And obviously Who Got You was the absolute um, out-and-out favourite and Leon and I uh, went for a coffee, went for breakfast really, what jockeys go for breakfast before they <laughs> before they can ride, um, on Derby Day. And we always stayed at Caulfield and, um, you know, I loved being at Caulfield and the Caulfield trainers were always really good to me as well. I rode for lots for Mick Price and Peter Moody as well and uh, I really enjoyed staying at Caulfield in the springtime and it was um, pretty unique. And we went for coffee at the local coffee shop there and um, talked about a plan because, come you know, before a big race like the Derby and there's owners in the mounting yard everywhere – you know, in a horse like the Rebel Raider got 10 owners in, you really can't really talk plan. Um, so you have to have all your plan and everything in place before race day. And obviously, the, you know, Rebel Raider, we've been talking about him for, for months leading up into this race. Uh, and, you know, we drew the outside gate and Leon said, you have to ride him back, but you can't ride him too far back. And I think if we're going to beat Huber Got You, we have to make it into a true staying test because that's probably his one chink in his armour that he hadn't, hadn't run over 2,000 metres. Um, and we knew that Deborah Brader was Dow Stayer and that was his asset. So that was our plan. And um, 
<laughs> and when we got up and left the coffee shop, we, neither of us paid. We both forgot to pay. <laughs> we just walked out because we were so like, focused on the race. <laughs> so Leon rings me up later and goes, did you pay for the coffee? And I said, no, this is did you? So, no. so anyway, we had to go back and pay the next day. But anyway, it's quite funny. Um, <laughs> doing a runner from the coffee shop. <laughs> Indeed. Um, yeah, yeah, before we won a big big million-dollar race. But, yeah, so riding Rebel Raider in, that, in, the, in the derby um, – it was one of those races which you look back and it was probably one of the easiest rides I've ever had. Just things panned out beautifully. I jumped from a widest gate. I ended up outside of Dwayne Dunn, who drew barrier two at, before we even got around the home turn. Uh, sorry, the um, leaving the straight the first time just after because he started the winning post for the Derby Star. Uh, and Dwayne even looked all across as we had you get here, Jock. Like you know, he had a little bit of banter, and it was like a little bit of a laugh, but. Coming down the back straight at about the forty hundred, I thought I need to get going here because I want to be I want to be the horse that's three wide making ground, not having horses come out, peel out around me and hold me in. So that's what happened. I peeled out and and started sort of as soon as I did that, then runs started to come and the pressure started to apply up the top and um, I managed to get cover because horses peel out in front of you. Managed to get cover around that big long sweeping eight hundred metre turn, which is important to have that bit of cover and getting around the um, the home straight, the six hundred. Hooper got you came up my my outside shoulder and I just managed to push him out of the way and get going for home and I expected Hooper got you to come back at me but at 300 metres when I'd sort of you know went for home head down and really went come on Rebel this is it we're going to get home going here and the crowd was cheering I thought it was because Michael Robb was coming back at me and so I just put my head down and went for home and that last furlong it was like I was in my head was just there was blood rushing through my head and my whole body was on fire. It was like we're saying, and I had to. I had this like little giggle coming up, and I thought, "Don't laugh, concentrate. Where's the winning post? Sit down." You know, it was like I had to go on muscle memory because it was like a bit of an out of body experience. My head's going, "I'm about to win the derby." I'm like, "Sit down," you know, <laughs> concentrate. Where's the line? And as I hit the line, it was just like this most. Oh, euphoric feeling of jubilation. And, you know, I just did this little salute. And then my legs went like jelly. Wow. <laughs> I could hardly pull him up. It was just, you know, the adrenaline surging through your body is just amazing. And, and he was, uh, Rebel Raider, we just ran away with it. Like he could have kept going for a, for a bit longer. And I was like, couldn't pull him up. <laughs> and then coming back to scale with John Letts and on the pony doing that, having that interview, <laughs> which is something you've watched for years. Like, how good is it to be interviewed by John Letts? It was yeah. just, yeah, it was pretty cool. Yeah. We're talking to Claire Lindop on this as your journey and it's all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funeral celebrating lives but there's rarely reward without sacrifice is there so Claire Lindop on the ever-present danger of the sport that's up next you're listening to this is your journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals visit tobinbrothers.com.au Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives it's great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. And Claire Lindop is our guest today. Claire, for many of us listening today who will obviously never experience it, can you put into words what it's like racing a thoroughbred in such close proximity to others, everyone fighting for position, travelling at, you know, 60 to 70 kilometres an hour? I imagine it's a bit like in Melbourne going down the Nepean Highway sitting on the car roof without access to the brakes, really. Oh, sometimes in traffic, you just think if I could just nudge someone out and push them off and push them out to get out in the lane. Yeah, I think um, 
Oh, you know, riding horses is the beauty of it. So I used to really also love working with young horses when they come in first in the stable. And, you know, the, the two-year-old horses who are a little bit uncoordinated, big and gangly, and sort of teaching them to gallop and lower their stride. And so what we're doing as a jockey when we're sitting on them, um, the action that we're doing is not dissimilar to trying to get a stationary swing to move. So, you know, when you're actually galloping a horse, you're really encouraging them to lengthen their stride. And so you're sort of pushing their heads forward and you're pulling back with your momentum and pushing their forward again. And if you can get them to have have a long, low stride and push their head down, their front legs have to go, um, have to be under their nose for their balance. So if you can coax that little bit further out of their every action, um, that's that's what you're doing as a jockey. And to have a horse that switches on and listens to the way you're riding them um, and just work with you, that is magic. To feel a horse, you know, like, like we're talking about in a race when you go from a standstill in the barriers um, and all of them sort of know too, you're standing in the gates and the nose is right in the gates and, the, and then when the gates crash back and they fly out, they kind of know. I mean, obviously some horses like to be forward and have more gate speed and then others, you know, you ride a little bit quieter. And just to have them travelling underneath you, and it, basically they become your legs. And so when you sort of give them a click and you give them clear room and get them out and going, and if you have to push out to get on someone, um, and to fuel them accelerate underneath you and go with you, it's like you're working as one, and that's pretty special to think that you've got that connection with an animal like that. Yeah, so that's one of the, the probably the highlights. And as far as like, you know, you're going at 60 kilometres an hour, 500 kilo animals jostling and bumping with each other. Um, that's where that trust comes in, I think, yeah. uh, as sports people and, and jockeys. And, and we do, um, you know, everyone sort of, you know, pushes the limits whenever we can, I suppose, when you're riding the best horses. But, um, yeah, it's something we take pretty seriously, I think, as well out there. There's a bit of camaraderie, I think, between all the jockeys. Yeah. Yeah, because obviously, and it is well documented, it must be said, the danger is ever present. I'd imagine it's something you just have to put to one side when, when, when you're out there. There's probably no other way to go about it, is there? Well, I don't think it's like it's like you never think you're going to have a car crash. Yeah, you know, you know the statistics about car crashes, but we still speed or we still text or you know don't put your seatbelt on. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, so I don't think you ever really think that um, you know we do have a lot of safety improvements since even since I've started riding. Um, you know, we didn't have safety vests when I first started, so we wear those now. Plastic running rails have been a really big improvement, um, and track conditions, etc., and. Um, education of horses, I think, is really important. So, um, yeah, so I think whatever we can do to improve safety and, um, you know, that kind of thing is, is really important as well. But um, as long as we kept to best practice um, and, you know, the horse welfare and jockey welfare are, are always um, being looked at, then, you know, I think it's the industry which is going to – which I think th- – the, the good, the good that it brings, and the joy it brings, and 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 the fun of the sport certainly outweighs any of the dangers. Yeah, no, that that goes without saying. But I wanted to ask you how the body was these days for you, Claire, because here's the body count for you. Okay, two broken collarbones, two broken ankles, broken tibia, fractured shoulder, dislocated shoulder, fifteen broken ribs, concussion. There's probably more. It does sound terrifying when you put them all together like that. Yeah, I've, well. Touch wood, I've, I've actually been relatively lucky in the falls I've had. Um, injuries and rehab um, are one of the worst things for any sportsman. Mm. And so, yeah, sitting on the sidelines was, re- was really tough. Um, and the pain of having to get back into the gym and get the body moving again is something that, you know, I really um, just really, I think, um, oh, I suppose I just resented it, I suppose, as well, having to do it. It's one of the things you can never store, is it, fitness? You sort of have to sort of get back and get started again and never look forward to getting fit again. It was always really very daunting. Um, my shoulder, my biggest fall I had was in 2014 when I broke my ribs in my shoulder, and um, that was a really tough fall. And um, although I came back and, um, you know, won the premiership the following year and had some more success after that, it probably did start 
mentally to drain me, like the, the, the having to get back into work and get back going again and, and the hard work that comes with having to reestablish yourself again and win back your rides, mentally it started to really probably put the toll on me too, more, more than actually physically. Gambling guru, wasn't it? So what was that, March 2014 Morphin Yeah, Yeah. Yep. Adelaide Cup Day, yeah, mm. so... Missed out on a good ride in the Cadillac Cup, too. <laughs> oh, that sounded horrific. Yeah. Oh, and I do apologise. It's probably not a period in your life you'd want to replay too often. What actually was clipping heels, wasn't it? Yeah. So I guess, as we talked about being so close, um, Gambling Guru, he was a bit aggressive out of the barriers um, and he got his head up. I was trying to bring him back. Um, and his near side front connected with the horse's back leg in front of me. Um, and you can clip heels and your horse still keeps his feet. But this this one time he just got it and... Um, yeah, his legs went down underneath him and he rolled and I rolled underneath him. Mm. Um, and just for listeners out there, Gambling Guru was fine and he obviously got up and um, he continued to race on as a racehorse. So, um, yeah, it was one of, one of the most significant injuries I've ever had to have and um, coming back from that was pretty tough. Yeah, and you mentioned the rehab is the thing that can wear you down, obviously, mentally, physically and all of all of the above. But also the coming back and racing after crashes or falls like that, can you lose your nerve out there, Claire? I mean, you've had a horse knock you out behind the gates by flipping over and landing on you. You've been dislodged on the way back to the mounting yard and, and broken your ankle. Can you, not just the grind of rehab, but then the art and the bravery required to actually come back and race, can you lose your nerve out there? And how difficult is that mentally? Well, I think, I think the thing is, is that um, because people ask you that, and I don't mean that now, I mean like, mm. you know, like, and like, you know, their questions like, you know, are you going to be okay? Or, you know, are you sure you're all right? Are, you know, are you going to, you know, how are you going to feel? Then you do actually start to second guess yourself. Like you even ask yourself, have I lost my nerve? <laughs> Rather than actually, you don't actually really lose your nerve. You kind of like question yourself. And so it's always really important to come back as soon as you can to ride a winner because everyone watches. Um, and if you happen to not ride a winner or, you know, ride one that, is unlucky. Um, people will, will will label you that, and probably that's probably the biggest fear that someone's going to think that you've lost your nerve. So um, yeah, and, and whenever you're out of form as a rider, um, that's always the biggest thing. You get anxious because you think, what are people going to say? So when you're in a riding, going through runabouts, um, it's not so much even what you think; it's the pressure of your thinking what other people might be thinking. <laughs> so yeah, so that's yeah. the really hard mental part. So, um, but yeah, I can tell you, I don't know. You just don't really think about it. It's been so long, and you've obviously had lots of trials, etc., going into the race day um, to get yourself fit to get there. Um, it does come back down to it. I tell you, that was hard for me though was riding Gambling Guru again in a race because mm. he was a really strong horse to hold. Uh, and if you look at Gambling Guru's form, I even stopped riding him. I said, look, I don't get along with him. Um, Jason Holder continued to ride him actually. Um, Leon's kind of other other rider. Um, so yeah, so I just really didn't get along with that horse at all. I, he was hard to hold and. Um, the owners were being a little bit fickle anyway. Um, you know, Harry Perks, as much as he was very good to me, he also did take me off a few times as well. Um, and so I sort of thought to Leon, I said, look, you know, I'm having a hard time riding Gambling Guru. I'll pass the ride to Jason and I'll just concentrate on other rides. And um, that's what I did for that season anyway for Gambling Guru. So, yeah, but that was probably the toughest thing, having to ride him again in a race, just because I had doubt about my ability to get the best out of the horse. Mm. Not so much being afraid, but yeah, so... Yeah. But courage is interesting because I think as a rider, we kind of learn to to have that courage because it's really difficult to put yourself out there every race. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, you have the confidence to do something that you know if it goes wrong, you're going to get hung out to dry. So, for example, sitting three wide in a race, 
a big sin. But sometimes the pace is too, too slow. If I go back, you know, I'm too far off the leaders. If I go forward, they're just going to kick up and hold me out. So you've got to take your medicine and sit three wide. Um, you know, sometimes the pace is no good um, and you're back. And you think, right, I'm going to get going and take off. So daring to do something different all the time is quite courageous because you know you can get hung and dried if it doesn't work out. Um, so that's one of the toughest things, I think, as a rider to actually do something that's a bit different, um, yeah, which you know is can be be doesn't doesn't work. Um, you're gonna get hung out to dry. So that's one of the things I think is the hardest things. But let us into your psyche, Claire, because just gambling guru aside, you fell and you got back up many times. I reckon the more times you got questioned, would I be right in saying the more determined you were to maybe the old prove them wrong mentality? <laughs> oh, oh, probably more pissed off I got. Yeah. Oh, sorry, can I say that? <laughs> you can. Um, yeah, no, just irritated with. I actually probably don't have a good. I never had a great relationship with media for that reason because I used to get um, frustrated by the same questions or the same, mm. you know, um, rhetoric, and they always wanted to like, you know. Um, have that angle about what was me kind of thing. It used to really annoy me. So, no, I never had a great relationship with media, to be honest. But, um, no, I probably you're probably right about maybe it was proving them wrong, but maybe it was more about proving myself right, perhaps. Yeah. 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 Hey, Claire, it's been an absolute pleasure to catch up today. Now, racing has given you so much, that's obvious. But at the same time, racing has been so lucky to have you. You're an incredible ambassador for your sport. Your journey is such a powerful motivator for others who seek to follow in your footsteps, and there'd be plenty of those. Well done on all you achieved, which was plenty, and thanks so much for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. And thank you, for, thank you for joining us also, Claire Lindop there. You've been listening to This Is Your Journey for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Jump online to find tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate the life of another sporting icon. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.